Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. On today's show, we've got Ben Clymer, the founder of Hodinkee. Hey everybody. Great to have you, Ben. <laughs> thanks. Guys. And we are in a hotel room, so that's why the sound is so crisp. Yeah, thanks for having us in your hotel yeah, room. I, I, I have two strange <laughs> men in my hotel room right now. Yeah, yeah so... What can go wrong? Hopefully nothing. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, well, Ben, thank you again for spending some time with us. Uh, we like to start off with hearing you know, your backstory and where you began. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about your early childhood days. Okay. Uh, so I was born in Rochester, New York, which is very different than Westchester, which a lot of people confuse for, for Rochester. Uh, Westchester is just north of New York City, very kind of like wealthy suburban right. New York City uh, folk. Uh, Rochester is about six hours north of that, really closer to Canada than New York City. So confusing for – you guys probably understand that, but mm-hmm. I've met people from other countries that have no understanding how big New York State is. Yeah. It's large. Uh, so uh, so I was born up there to uh, Bill and Barrel Climber my parents who are very much still around and, and kicking and they uh moved up there they're both from the new york area they moved up there for a kind of a, an easier more quiet life sister and i were raised up there uh, i was a very um quiet child uh you know really almost like i don't want to say like unusually quiet but i was like my teacher was like huh he doesn't he doesn't like talking to people which remains true to be clear mm-hmm. um and uh my mother was a speech pathologist my father was a professor so basically like the, the child of teachers so i think that upbringing which was really like very you know i don't want to say we were impoverished in any way we were not but it was very like pure middle class you right. know um you know not not upper middle class uh, and i think that and we'll get to it later, but I think that has informed a lot of the way that I think about business now. Um, and so, you know, had a very normal kind of upbringing and uh, kind of grew into myself in high school and, and towards college, went to Syracuse University um, um, to do business and computer science, basically, whatever that is. Uh, and, you know, really, I think, started to kind of find myself intellectually and kind of creatively at, at school. Why were you uh, like? Why were you so quiet as a kid? Is it was it just natural to you? Yeah, or, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I I don't have that answer. I think if yeah. if I did, I would probably understand myself better. But I think like, I, w- would I, you I, say you were introverted or yeah, were you were oh, just quiet? I'm, I'm yeah. absolutely introverted. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. you know, I, I would say I'm like I'm I, I'm a reluctant extrovert in situations like this. But like we're talking about something that I'm like intimately familiar. We're basically talking about me. You know? Yeah. So it's easy for me to be extroverted in this case. Right. Um, but as as my wife says, like I'm a triple Scorpio, which is true. And so like I am very kind of like closed off and very like in in my my own space. Um, and I think it was also just like a maybe a lack of confidence or not understanding kind of where my role was. And I think like that's again, you know, what I reference a lot when I think of Hodinkee and Fair Game. Like, if for, for the guy who's not the smartest guy in the room, who's not the most athletic guy in the room, who's just a guy, you know, like we're kind of like that is the majority of people. I would presume right. that's both yep. of you. It's, yep. it's probably most people that you meet on the street. Uh, and I think like that that experience uh, informed how I think about business today and in fact about how i think about community today right um so you know i don't have a, a real answer for you why i was so quiet but i yeah. just was was there any pressure on you as a kid to like be you know go down a certain path in life or anything like that no i mean not not really i mean like it wasn't like you know my parents were like big shot you know morgan stanley executives or something like that. it wasn't that at all right. um you know there wasn't a ton of in in rochester which was a lovely place to grow up there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship um the only entrepreneurship that I was really exposed to was like very local stuff. It was like my friend's dad owned a jewelry store. My friend's dad was a real estate developer you know, in Rochester. And then, the, you know, the, the biggest influence on me was my maternal grandfather, Elliot Friedman was his name, uh, who was an entrepreneur, did not live in Rochester, you know, lived in Long Island and had a house in West Palm Beach and drove a Mercedes and wore a Rolex and was like, he was a cool guy. He's what, what I aspired to be. What, what did he do? Uh, so he started, believe it or not, he was a candy salesman in the 50s, you know, like really like actual candy salesman. That's cool. Uh, then he started a cigarette lighter business in the 60s, which was actually like a great business, as you right. can imagine. Sold that for who knows what. I mean, not nothing crazy, but yeah. did okay. And then he was on the board of a bank and like just had like, like had a like, serial entrepreneur. Yeah, serial yeah. entrepreneur. And, and like did stuff, you know, like tried stuff that was his own. Uh, and, you know, the genesis of Hodinki was that when I was 16, there was – something going on in the family and he basically just took his Omega Speedmaster off of his wrist and handed it to me and said, I want you to have this. And he was already my idol, but that moment kind of like crystallized and really, you know, really, you know, cemented him as my mentor and kind of like, did you know what the value of that was? Uh, I mean, beyond have, the monetary value. Yeah, uh, at the time, yeah, honestly, I did. I mean, I think you know, even though back then I kept to myself, like I, I was always very thoughtful and very mindful of the world around me, and certainly you know the economic situation of, right. of what that meant. Like that was a I don't know, we'll call it a $1,500 watch at the time, which you know, I didn't have a dollar. Like I was a child, you right. know? Uh, so just a meaningful thing. And I also understood that he loved watches and he valued them. And so therefore I valued it. Mm. And that watch, of course, we then 
kind of remade for our 10th anniversary with Omega. So, I mean, that is absolutely kind of like the like seminal moment in my professional life. Was he a big collector or? or no, he had, uh, he had two watches. You know, yeah. he had three watches. He had, he had one Rolex, a gold Day-Day that my dad now has. He had a, a very slim Patek Philippe that my, my aunt has yeah. uh, and this Omega. And that's it. He probably had some other junky things, but like, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing really important. Did he ever tell you stories of those watches? And yeah. why he bought them, or you know, the, the, what the, they meant. The Rolex and the Patek, yeah. The Omega, no. To be honest with you, I mean that was that was a slightly later in life purchase. You know, this watch is from the mid nineties, and um, it was just something that that he liked. And I think like sometimes, you know, sometimes we all ascribe to or we we want to assign meaning to stuff when there's not. And that watch probably didn't mean all that much to him. Right. It was probably just like, oh, that's cool. I can afford it. Why not? You know, right. which is so much of, of life, you know. But it, of course, you know, translated into meaning a whole hell of a lot to me, more than he will, will ever know. He's obviously passed, you know, by, by many years. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that watch meant a ton to him. And, and that's okay because it, it means the world to me. Yeah. Did that really like spark some sort of passion in, for watches in you? Or was it just at the time, oh, this is cool. Like watches are cool, but you know, I'm just going to go to college, study business. And, yeah. and did you like really have an idea of what you wanted to do at the time? Not, not at all. I mean, I, so I'm a, I should say I'm a collector by, by, by nature. Like I just love to collect stuff. And but you're like not a hoarder. Not, well, no, I don't think I'm a hoarder. I, I like to be more organized. Than okay. that. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, when I, before I could drive and ride around on my bike all day, I would go to garage sales and buy Bakelite telephones or radios, which had, I mean, even back then when I was a kid, they had no purpose at all. Like yeah. I was buying these for a quarter, you know, like they didn't, they didn't work, right. but they were beautiful. Or I should say they were cool looking. I didn't understand why I liked them. I just did, you know? Right. Um, so I was buying them, collecting them, baseball cards, Marvel cards, all the stuff. Um, and then my dad was a photographer. He gave me uh, a light meter back when you needed a light meter for like an analog camera. That was pretty cool. And then I was a boy scout. So compasses and then kind of like put all that together and put it on your wrist and it's a mechanical watch. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I wasn't obsessed. I didn't grow up loving watches. My dad didn't wear a great watch. It was just a cool thing. Right. Um, and you know, as, as you may or may not know, I ended up going into consulting and then finance. So there was no ambition to be like a watch guy in any way. I didn't even know that was a thing. It's not really a thing. Well, you know? Would you say that like even 30, 40, 20 years ago that watches weren't necessarily like a cool thing and it was just more so like something more meaningful to you versus like now where, you know, everyone's talking watches like they're, they're collecting they're they're, they're publicly collecting these things. I think, you know, depending on the decade, there was historically of, I shouldn't say it didn't exist, but there was a very small set of people that were collecting and we're talking like, you know, effectively like chairman and Goldman Sachs type right, of right, people, right. you know, like, like hyper wealthy already own the world. Right. Why not buy some watches, you know? Uh, and then there were the nerds that were on, you know, the time zone forums in the mid nineties, et cetera, that were like really like nerdy about it and not, you know, that was a little bit more of gatekeeping, which mm-hmm. we wanted to change with Odinky for sure. Um, and then even when I started the site, I mean, it was really, it was cat- the the whole industry was catering to middle-aged rich people right and that could be americans mostly chinese in 2008 i mean that was a big big set of the buyers back then and and back then what people wanted was the flashiest shit you could possibly imagine right. so you want a diamond covered jacob and co turbion or yeah, a diamond like an covered... iced out watch exactly yeah. yeah i mean that was the thing in 2008 and now it's the antithesis of that i think we had some role in that and um it was just a different world back then 2008 and you know going back 20 30 years when i was a kid nobody right. really cared at all what was like the source or resource for like watches? If you were like an aficionado, you wanted to learn about new watches. Was there any? There, there was there was a, a, a forum uh, like a web 1.0 forum called timezone.net that okay. began in like the mid 90s but that was like nerd stuff like like the rich guys weren't on there yeah uh, the, like the, like you know you're looking at the complications and the mechanics and all yeah that i mean stuff. you're yeah. really going into like how the watch is made right you know and then like the you know much to the chagrin of the retail market like back then is when you had people that were just living and dying by retailers right so if you had a retailer and Person X walks in that's worth $100 million or more, and he likes watches. Like, you're the sales guy. You tell me what to buy, and they would just buy it. And so a lot of people made some very poor decisions based on retailers in the early 90s and the early 2000s and and, and before. You know, you talk about, uh, you know, college a little bit. What, what was the goal, like, when you went to Syracuse and studied business? Yeah. To be honest, the, the, there really wasn't one. You know, I... I really just wanted to figure out a way to live a life of, of kind of freedom, if that makes any sense. And back then, you guys, excuse me, may remember, like, 
entrepreneurs wasn't a thing really i mean it was around but not in the same way it is today there was no like founder culture right yeah. um back then everybody in my little social set wanted to work at morgan stanley or goldman <laughs> sachs or like they want to be in finance like that's how you made money if you were a young white kid basically yeah. you know yeah. and so i was like all right like i, I want to make money i'll do that i'm a young white kid yeah, let's exactly <laughs> let's, let's do this um and so i i Started to study finance, realized I was terrible with numbers and just didn't make sense. Uh, so then I, I started to like general management and and, and uh, information studies, computer science, whatever. Um, and I just I, I always liked tech. I like I you know we had vaxes back in the day, not faxes but vaxes. Like I was an early internet guy, AOL 1.0, and so I wanted to kind of lean into that. And like I built the first several versions of Houdini. I coded it. I, I built it. Um, and so I wanted to do something in that world, but like, you know, I didn't have a dollar. So yeah. I was just looking to get a good job out of school. Thankfully, I did. I worked for a great company called Aquis Consulting Group, which was kind of like a, I don't know, McKinsey or Accenture spinoff uh, company in New York. Had great clients there. Um, ended up going over to UBS for one of my managing directors from the first company went and went with them. And, you know, they offered me a salary of like 100 grand a year at the age of 25, which yeah. is just like hard to say no. Yeah, yeah. it's impossible. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. impossible and, to say And no. it's crazy. You know, like a lot of founders we've had on the show and just founders I'm aware of have some sort of finance background, have worked on Wall Street or like in consulting or yep. iBanking or one of those yep. types of industries. And, I just wondering in your case, like what was what were some takeaways or things that maybe you learned that you've now applied as a business owner founder? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I had a much richer experience as a consultant than working in finance. Like I was as a consultant, we were a generalist management consulting firm, so we got to go in at the board level of Pfizer when they lost the patent for Lipitor, which was like literally the most valuable drug in the history of drugs. You know, it was cholesterol, cholesterol, right? And so you know, you have a patent for let's say twenty years, and once it's up, you can do generic, right? Right. I mean, like. That, that was literally like the revenue was going to be cut in half one year to the next. I mean, it was Crazy. just nuts. So getting to, I mean, I wasn't, I was a kid. I wasn't really working on it, but I got to hear about all this stuff and like realize like what really goes into it, which was mind blowing. Um, and then just the, the people. And I think that is something that I've always been strong with is like being able to understand and mentalize people. And in consulting, you really do that. And when I jumped over to like basically project management in finance, it wasn't so much about that. Frankly, I didn't learn a ton at UBS, honestly. But I was there a short time. You know, I was there basically as soon as I signed, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yeah. Which is fun. Uh, that was exciting. And uh, <laughs> and the, the one thing I learned from from working at a giant bank is I'll never work at a giant company again. Right. Yeah. You know, like 10,000 employees, et cetera. Uh, it was just really, if I can say, disgraceful how they treated, not me, I was, mm-hmm. I was a kid, I didn't care, but like people that had kids, people that had been there for 20, 30 years, it was just really... It's just unpleasant, you know? And it wasn't like, yeah. there were no laws broken. It was just like, oh man, like that that's kind of shitty. Like, is that really how it, it is as an adult, you know? Uh, and so it was kind of at that moment that I was like, I will never, ever be a cog in this type of wheel. Mm-hmm. Was that because, I mean, obviously seeing that has some impact, but then, then again, there are a lot of people that go through that experience, but somehow just aren't able to find another path. You know, like they yeah. just like, I mean, other paths could be working for smaller companies or starting yeah. your own company, but not everyone is able to do that for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. Was it just because you had this like ambition in you that you wanted to do something more? Or? Always. Yeah. yeah. Always. I, I remember, I remember, uh, giving a, an, an answer to a job interview that I didn't get once. And they said, you know, what do you want in a life? And I was just like, I just don't want an ordinary life basically, which was like, you know, kind of very telling and, and perhaps kind of like self-involved. And again, I didn't get that job, um, <laughs> which is great actually. Right. And, uh, and I, I just like, I wanted something different and I thankfully I have something different now. And so what I haven't talked about on other podcasts elsewhere is like, I tried to start several other businesses, you know, they were at that time. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, you know, I would say between college and the first few years out of school and they, they weren't, they didn't work. I mean, I never even got them off the ground. I was like appointing people as like chief marketing officer and whatever. Like, hey, Ross, you want to do this? Uh, and you know, was I didn't. It, was it just you just like did a bunch of thinking about it and you're like, yeah. ah, I don't know if that's gonna work. Well, I mean, yeah. I just I didn't even really put it into action. You yeah. know, I like I just like okay, this is the business plan. I I in, in Syracuse, I was part of the entrepreneurship program. We won a bunch of like whatever, like local entrepreneurship awards. Yeah, you know, business school plan <laughs> yeah, stuff, yeah. business plan stuff. And uh, so I thought I was good at it. And so I just tried stuff, but like, I didn't fucking know anything from anything, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I just kept on doing that. And then when I ran out of money, basically I was like, all right, I got to go work at UBS. You know, just to focus on that a little bit, because I feel like, you know, even, even if it's just me and Pat or you hear about a shit ton of people coming up with all these business ideas and some of them are great ideas. They really are. Mm -hmm. Why do you think some of the ones that you had or were working on didn't work? Was it just because you didn't put the effort was it not the right time were you not the right person what stopped you because i'm yeah. curious like how many great ideas like you can talk make yourself it. out of them yeah, yeah, yeah. but that, that can make it yep. and like 
sure that it's like what 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 does it take? We all know like what it takes. Yeah. But I'm just curious about yeah. your experience. I mean, like I, I can be specific and tell you the two ideas that, that were yeah, sure. So one of them came from Syracuse where my 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 team had this idea of building like um I forget the I forget the name of what we were going to call it, but it was effectively like really early days experiential retail. So like yeah. you know, like bass pro shops, you can yep. go like fishing, whatever. Yeah. So we had this, but like excuse me, times 10 with indoor, you know, indoor golf range, indoor ski thing. And but like, it was like, it was really pretty well thought out. We won the local competition. We got to go to a national competition in Denver and like whole thing. And so that was it. And then, you know, basically I was like, okay, like we're going to do this. Right. And everyone else was like, what are you talking about? Like I have a job, you know, or I'm, I'm getting a job after senior year. And then I remember going to professor and I was like, Hey, like this feels like this, this idea has legs, like whatever. And he's like, you're going to need $50 million to get this thing off right. the ground. Like if, if you can raise that, go for it. You know, I was like, what's raising, like, I don't know what raising money is. You yeah. Know? Was it even a, like a big thing back then? Like no, big, big raises and stuff? Never. Yeah. I mean, and that, that even that, like I, I probably went through five years of Hodinkee before I even considered raising money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was just kind of the, this, the ambition was too big. The idea was good, but like the in, yeah. initial startup costs and all that totally. kind of stuff was just Yeah. Like, and ridiculous. it's also like, yeah. I would do like a little one and then Dick Sporting Good would do one like a hundred times the size right you know, like yeah you, you prove out the long. concept and all of a sudden exactly. you know yeah. 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 yeah well that was now i think showfields is basically kind of that yeah fields or like <laughs> I, I remember going to golfsmith when i was a kid and yeah. just like putting yeah. on the putting, exactly. putting so imagine that but like blown out yeah. so like i mean like an all together it, yeah. it was it was neat uh, yeah, yeah. but i mean like again kind of like silly in the ambition yeah um and then excuse me the second one was i did this internship at a medical coding company which was like the most boring thing ever but medical coding which is like okay like this guy has a fucking open heart surgery or something and that gets processed and there's something called medical code and you have to be licensed to be a medical coder and says okay like ben had open heart surgery it's code xyz so and so and it is a incredibly highly paid by the hour position so it's like you know over a hundred dollars an hour or i think was back then um and it's basically done all on contract and so like it was basically like okay the the not the hotel the the hospital in syracuse needs people for this number of hours based on uh, patient inflow or outflow this company would just broker things so like, okay, like, you know, Ben needs this, Andrew needs that, James needs this, and they would just put people together. And I was just like, wow, like this company t- basically takes 50% of this hourly rate for, for basically just putting people together. Like mm-hmm. brokering it. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, let's build a website that does that, you know, effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the one that I thought probably had the most legs because it was like real, it was digital, it wouldn't require a bunch of startup capital. It just required getting yeah. people onto the platform. And that was the one where I was like going around like, hey, do you want to be chief marketing officer? And like, <laughs> uh, and that, you know, it just, I just didn't care about it in right. any way. It was just like, oh, I see this inefficiency. Let's right. make it efficient. But I don't really care. It was all much. purely opportunistic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I clearly do not care about medical coding. Right. Yeah. Um, like, like if you would look out like five to 10 years, you're like, I can't see myself doing this never, for another. Yeah. Never, yeah. And I just, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is like, I've just, I'm now self-aware enough to know when I'm going to like be able to commit time to something and when I'm not like if I, yeah. if I love it, I'm there and I'll fucking crush it. Yeah. If I'm not, I'm not. I, I love how you bring this up. Cause I was going to ask, you know, you mentioned earlier about not wanting to have an ordinary life that could, that could encompass a bunch of things, right? It's a, you know, that could be like, I want to make a lot of money. It doesn't fucking matter what I do. I just yeah. want to make a lot of money or yeah. I want to be making enough money, but doing what I enjoy doing. Yeah. So that way, like I have that balance. It's funny. Like, it, what was, what were you, what was in your head yeah. in terms of your ideal vision of like what you wanted? It, it was, it was never about money. It was more about like, I just remember being, you know, I'm, I'm quietly like kind of a pretty weird dude. And I just remember being in middle school and like, you know, the teacher saying like, we have to go outside for recess or whatever. And I was like, man, I don't fucking want to do that. And I'm just like, I, I don't, I like really don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> and there's and, no reason I just don't want to yeah, do that. Exactly. I was like, yeah. I don't know why I just don't want to do that right, right now and i would be like oh, i don't want to go and she'd be like you need to go and i was just like why you know yeah. and it wasn't about money at all it was about just like the idea of like doing the stuff that i wanted to do when i wanted to do it how i wanted to do it so it really wasn't like the income is just you know that somehow allows it but like you know i worked at hodinky for many many years without a dollar to my name but i was still doing exactly what i wanted to do because I either owned the company or was a large shareholder in it. I was a CEO. Like you figured, you know, this this company has legs. I'm building value. Yeah. It doesn't matter right now that I'm not making as much money as I would like. Right. I'm doing what I enjoy exactly. and I'm doing it for the long haul. Yeah. So like it's going to work out at some point. Yeah. And so I really just wanted to figure out a way where I could live a life that was that was fun and interesting to me. You know, and I'm not saying it'd be interesting to you guys or some of my parents, but like I wanted to enjoy it. But most people might not have that luxury, right, to say – I want to enjoy what I'm doing, even if I'm making money or whatever. Yeah. At what point would you have said, I'm enjoying this, but I really need to make money? Yeah, look, I mean, I was lucky in that I took these risks early. You know, right. now I've got a wife and a daughter and a mortgage and, and all that jazz. Like, I, I couldn't do it or at right. least take the risk like this today. Um, but I was, 
I had enough confidence in myself after you know the stuff with Syracuse and, and elsewhere um, that I thought I could I could give it a give it a whack. You know, like why not? And yeah. I think um, that's you know often asked kind of like the one piece of advice for entrepreneurs is like just try. And I think that's the thing that I didn't do early on with those right. two other ideas. I didn't even try to raise money. I didn't try to launch the medical coding business. Right. Like maybe if I had, they would have worked. I mean, right. I would have you know in hindsight, I'm much happier where I am now. But what, when even if you just try, when do you just stop? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's different for every person. Right, of you know? course. And I, I mean, you know, this is, I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the podcast, but like there, there's these, there's, in the founder community, there's like two kind of sets. There's the set that had like either like, you know, had really tough upbringings or middle class upbringings. Right. And then there's people whose parents was a partner at Goldman Sachs totally. or, or bigger, you know, and so many entrepreneurs are like that. the founder of WebMD or something. Yeah. You know, so, so, <laughs> something like Um And, uh, and I think, you know, th- there's no resentment in me right. towards the people of that course. had it easier, but there are people that had it a hell of a lot easier. Right. And uh, and I think it's just some, everyone's different. And so, oh. you know, if you have an amazing company, but your husband or your wife is a multimillionaire, then you can keep going for as long as you want. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, I saw you went to grad school for journalism. Uh, when, so you were in consulting. What happened? Like, why did you decide to so do was that? that? Was that UBS? Lehman Brothers collapsed. Oh, um, UBS. I was, uh, I was already, I first wrote about my grandfather's Omega. I wanted to be a writer. I deemed, I was kind of tired of like business, mm-hmm. you know, air quotes business. I want to be a writer, like a journalist. This came to you while you're at UBS or yeah, even, exactly. yeah, yeah. And so I started writing about my grandfather's Omega and then Rolexes and Patex and APs and things like that. And it was really just a way to bide my time at a dead end job, at a truly dead end job. And I liked it. I liked to write. And I had done well in, in school, but never really, like nobody encouraged me to think of myself as a creative in any way. Like it was like, you're, you're like a middle-class white kid going to finance, right. you know? No one said like, hey, Ben, you're good at writing. Like you should do this for a career. I, I got good grades in writing and English and yeah. things like that, but no. Not, but it's not sort of really. up to you to figure out, maybe I'm actually pretty good at this, better than the average person maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And look, I, I'm not saying like th- there are there are better writers than I on our staff, but like I have the, the ability to kind of like storytell. Like they can right. turn a sentence better, but like I know the narrative better than they do. What happened at UB? Was it like, how did you land on writing? Like what... Did it, was it just like an epiphany you had? Or no, like, it was, look, I was, I was bound to a desk. Yeah. You know, I had to be there. Uh, and uh, I could no get work on, from home bullshit. <laughs> no work from home bullshit for sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of thank God. And because uh, I had, you know, I was like, had yeah. nine yeah. fucking roommates back yeah. then. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I had to be sitting at my desk. I had to look like I was working. And so I could get into Tumblr and Squarespace at my computer right. all day. And back then, and I'm sure today, UBS used to block like yep. ESPN.com and like right. the major, major websites. Um, so it was, it was just something I enjoyed and that's it. And my goal was to go to journalism school if I could, and then become a journalist, like a full on, like travel around the world, tell interesting stories type of journalist. And how old were you around this time? 25. 25. Yeah. And you figured, you know, now's a good time time. to take this risk. Just leave my, leave my cushy job here and just like try to do something I enjoy. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly it. And it was, uh, I was, I was prepared to make a lot less money and live a much happier life. And the 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 gal I was dating at the time, who you know I haven't been with for ten years plus, um, you know she was much more of a free spirit than I was, and she was kind of really encouraging of that, and it made it made sense for who we were back then, and it felt great. And then just right. to, I, back then, you know this Hodinky Hodinky.tumblr.com got picked up pretty quickly, and so GQ, Financial Times, had to spend it. Like a lot of these like luxury lifestyle publications would reach out to me, and they would say, "Hey, will you write for us?" And I would say, I will, if you include a link to Houdinki at the bottom. Ben's the founder and whatever. Right. And most of them said yes for a reduced rate, fine. Yep. Um, and so I started to get good pickup. And you were writing about watches. Yeah, writing so about watches. So that's what you did. Yeah. You, you, you quit your job. You went to grad school. Mm-hmm. And you launched this Tumblr account for yeah. Hodinkee. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, yeah. So I, I launched that before I left. Got it. Um, but uh, and, and how did you come across? How did you come to the name Hodinkee? Like yeah, this? you know, it's I again like this was never intended to be a business. Like genuinely, I know yeah. a lot of people say that, but like I really mean that. You can tell by the name. Yeah. Uh, and so I just Google translated wristwatch into a bunch of different languages. And if if you remember, like this Classic. was exactly two thousand eight was the era of Google, right? Yep. Like Google was the biggest company in the world. And yep. so double vowel. Yep. You look at another very popular website based out here called Goop, another double vowel. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of like put a double vowel on on Houdinki with with a Y means wristwatch and check. Yep. Yep. And it was just like a goofy, goofy sounding word. Um, and I didn't give it a second thought because like this was like the stupid project. This was I not going to be business. It's going to be just something. And so if, if you did end up, like once you ended up going to grad school, getting yeah. your degree, where did you think you would go? Like a big publication? To, yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, I think my ambition was probably like the Atlantic, uh, New York Times style section you know I, I you know forbes maybe forbes lifestyle i don't know something something like that yeah so what do you exactly or what did you exactly write about watches at the time because like if i'm looking if i'm 24 25 years old looking at a watch i'm like 
It's green. Yeah. It has, you know, a dial. It has like two <laughs> little dime, things. Yeah. You know, it's I think this is a bezel. Now. I don't even know yeah. what that means. Yeah, yeah, you, the, you should be a writer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, what, so what were you writing about? Yeah. So the, the stories, and that, that's a great question, actually. So the, the stories I was writing at the time were mostly focused on vintage watches, which was completely unheard of back then. Like, it existed because watches are old, but nobody gave a shit at all. I mean, nobody. Right. Uh, and so I didn't know what a publicist was. I didn't know what a press trunk it was. I was just doing the stuff that I enjoyed, and I liked old shit. I liked old cars, old watches, still do. And uh, I started going to these watch auctions at Anticorum, which is still around. It was, you know, five dealers in a room basically buying and selling old watches to each other and the occasional multi-billionaire in the back just buying everything, you know. <laughs> uh, and But I would start to read these catalogs and I'd learn so much. And then I would say, oh, wait a minute, like Mahatma Gandhi's watch, this the Zenith pocket watch with his glasses and sandals, like the iconic glasses sold at an auction. I was like, whoa, like Gandhi had a pocket watch? Like who knew, you know, it turns out he loved the thing. And then shortly thereafter, the Gandhi watch, um, Albert Einstein's Longines sold. I was like, wow, you know, this is the watch that Albert Einstein wore. And like, just think about what that watch has seen, you know? Yeah. And then a lot of failures. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. A lot of math. Uh, a lot of math. <laughs> so many chalkboards. Um, and then you know, the one that was kind of, I wouldn't call it a breakthrough, but I guess it, I guess it kind of was, was Steve McQueen's Rolex. Yeah. Which like Steve McQueen, there was this kind of like hashtag menswear era, yep. probably 10, 15 years ago, where like all the kids, at least in New York, were about Steve I McQueen. I think I have Steve McQueen per soul glasses. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 749. Yeah. So. yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. It was very much a thing. And I was, I wanted to be a part of it. And so Steve McQueen's Rolex came up and it was like a $5,000 watch, you know, if it weren't his. And it sold for whatever, I'm going to say 200 something like that, which is just crazy at the time. I wrote about it for Hodinkee. That was hugely received. I mean, like just wildly received. How are people finding these art, these like posts? I mean, it was, it was, we were weirdly enough popular on BuzzFeed back then. Uh, there was something called Stumble Upon. Yep. I remember, remember that. that? Yeah. I'm sure there's Dig, up. Dig and Stumble yeah, Upon. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it was funny. I mean, Dig was founded by my friend Kevin, who ended oh, up nice. working with us. Yeah, um, and uh, and so just like these organic things. And back then, like everything was friendly. Like nobody gave a shit about this little watch blog. Like I would get picked up by Engadget, Gizmodo, Autoblog. Mm -hmm. How long know. into it though? Like yeah, how many posts did you have to do until people oh, started taking notice? I mean, hundreds, yeah. hundreds. I mean, I remember the first time we had a hundred hundred uniques on the site in a day. I remember the first time we had a thousand uniques on the site. Visitors, I, yeah, visitors. Yeah. This is on yeah. the Tumblr still, or this is on your like? This was on Squares. We. On uh, jumped over to Squarespace. Yeah. Um, but, if, you know, not too dissimilar. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it took a while for sure. And it was really when I was in graduate school, which was 2010 to 12, that it started to really take off. And around then, in 2013, I was uh, – the New York Times wrote a really – wonderful piece about me that called me like the high priest of horology um time named us one of the 50 best websites in the world uh in 2012 or 13 mm -hmm. so i was still in school or wow. just, just leaving school at this time and all of a sudden like my professors at i went to columbia which is a good journalism school they were like hey like are you making money with this and i was like <laughs> actually i am like i don't like i'm just taking passive income you know advertising money yep and they were like huh like that's pretty that's pretty wild and i was like yeah i guess so uh, and, uh, and then when all of my classmates were looking for jobs at the New York times yep. or CNN, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to stick with this thing. And, uh, and so I met a guy there named Will, who's still on our team today, who was a super talented videographer at Columbia, at Columbia. And he was, we we're in the same program. And, uh, and he, I, I had to go, I was traveling a ton back then for, for Hodinkee. I started to go on these press trips. And I was like, hey, man, like, I don't have time to edit this video I'm shooting in Argentina next week. Would you mind editing it? And I gave it to him, and I was like, going to pay him, like, whatever, 300 bucks. And he gave it back, and it was just, like, great. It was just, like, so much better than what I would do, you know? <laughs> and I was like, hey, dude, like, you want to you work with us? And were you the one coming up with all the ideas for, like, the content and all that yeah, stuff? And yeah, how it, did, it was how, like, what were you inspired? Like, what would, how did the ideas come to you? I mean, it, was it just natural? <sighs> Uh, it just, it just kind of came to me, you know? Yeah. And it's like, when I see something I like, I, I know that I like it. Like when I see a car, you know, it's like, why do people like roses? You know, it's right. like, why do you prefer red over yellow? Like you just No, cause I, I've de definitely taken notice to the aesthetic of the content and it's yeah. like, it's, it's amazing. Right. Like, and, and I'm just curious, like, it's like what mid-century modern, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. What, what has inspired you in terms of content that you've consumed maybe growing up? Yeah. It, it, uh, I, I hate to say it and I don't say this lightly, but like I, there was nothing that inspired me for this stuff. This yeah. is organic kind of taste and what strikes my eye. I don't like, I didn't know who uh, Jean Nouvel was, or I didn't yeah. know who like any of these great mid-century or you know Marcel Breuer, or who like I I didn't know them until recently, like till well after I could like afford the stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there was no inspiration on that. So right. I wish there were. Right. Um, but it was just it was just kind of what I was into. You know, that's actually an interesting point because I feel like, and I always say this, like before I was married or before I was even dating, like I didn't care at all about art yeah. or museums, any of this stuff. Like so, I definitely credit my wife for that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
and it just opens your eyes to different things, yeah. right? Not even just the art itself, but just like almost imagination. Yeah. You know, why is it that you're, we're not taught to be more imaginative as kids? Because that's, in my opinion, what's lacking, yeah. even when it comes to business entrepreneurship, like yeah. everyone's just copying people now. It's like, oh, I could create another Hodinkee yeah. for fucking microphones. The, the Warby Parker of Right, X, right. Y, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. but how do we infuse more imagination into the world? Yeah. It's, that, that's a great question. Uh, frankly, I don't have the answer today, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think, you know, the idea again, that like just tr- being, being, being encouraged to try what you actually want to do, I think is, is really very seldom, at least it was seldom in, in my experience seen. And again, the idea, like I didn't want to be a watch entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, you know, of, of any kind like this, but the idea was like, okay, like it wasn't even on the table. It was like, you will go into finance. You will be a lawyer, a doctor, uh, you know, something me very very you know kind of like up the up the middle and i think you know with with my own daughter and with with people now you know look again my parents were not wealthy you know like we took out loans to go to school and like you know it was yeah. very normal upbringing and i think uh you know they thought much more pragmatically about life than than i do and i think they frankly they thought and still think very conservatively about life fiscally speaking economically mm-hmm. like not politically but another conversation um and uh and I think I was a direct response to that. And I love taking risks, you know, just in life. And I think uh, I kind of credit them in many ways for being so conservative with with their money, with every basically everything, because now I'm the opposite because of it. And that has allowed me to be this person, to, to quit a, a pretty good job for a kid uh, and become a watch blogger and go back to grad school. And, yep. you know, they were, they were, I'm not even kidding you. They were, they were, and they'll listen to this. So apologies, parents, but like they were so concerned about health insurance. Right. 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 Yeah. In 2008, 2009, they were like, as long as you have health insurance, we don't care. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm, I would, I'm not I, I would say that most people probably still do think like that. Yeah. And it's yeah. not wrong. It's just, it's just, it's different. It's not wrong, yeah. but you can like, you can always figure stuff out. Right. right. Like it's yeah. not like if I leave UBS, like I will be destitute and not a fate. Right. Like, if I have a fucking brain yeah. cancer that I won't get surgery. Right. Like, yeah. You know, it's very, it's not easy at all. It just takes a little bit of legwork and people need to be willing to put in that legwork in order to receive the upside. And, and actually it's an interesting point. Um, cause it kind of comes back to my next question is like, that's like a precautionary measure you're taking, right? Like yeah. what if in the future something like ha- this happens, I want to be prepared. How, do, how far ahead were you thinking in terms of business? Like when you were starting Hodinkee, yeah. did you, you know, think far ahead to be like, is this a scalable business that's going to, you know, make me a good living at some point yeah. or were you not thinking that far? No, at, at the time when Hodinki first started to make real money and by real money, I mean like more than $50,000 a year. Yeah. Um, it was all about the lifestyle for me. And again, I was a quiet kid uh, from upstate New York, never, never got to do cool shit basically, you know, and all of a sudden brands would be like, Hey, do you want to go to the South of France and go on a yacht and like drive a formula one car? And like, yeah, like, of course I do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you're around like beautiful French women and drinking good wine and like stuff that like, I just would never get to experience, even if I had stayed at UBS and been successful. Yeah. Uh, so it was really, you might've experienced that at UBS at 64. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right before you retired. But in hindsight, so. um, why do you think it caught on so much? Like, um, you know, I'm imagining there wasn't a place where people could go and consume like really high quality content when it came to watches there and things nothing. like that. But like, were you? Th- did you notice that at the time? Yeah, I, I think subconsciously, I look, we we were the first digital people for sure. Yeah, and, and you know, I think more than that, or in combination with that, and I think the, the, the kind of secret sauce, so to speak, was it was that being digital first and only, being young, being in New York helps. I mean, New York, I kind of credit New York as my co-founder in Hodinkee, like so much opportunity. Uh, and then the, the final thing is going back to what I mentioned earlier, which is like this middle class mindset, this idea that like nobody needs this shit, right? And on top of that, I'm just happy to be here. And by be here, I mean like in the room with you guys, in the room with a nice watch. Like I, you know, I don't take any of that for granted. And right. I think so much of the the air quotes luxury media at the time and even today mm-hmm. was was, you know, kind of predicated on this idea of like assumed wealth that you were born into it, that your children were born into it, that right. like you should know what a Patek 5970 is when you're 16 years old. Like I didn't know what that was yeah. until I was much later, you know, much older. And so this idea of like appealing to the every man and making it more youthful and making it more fun and lighthearted, like we're called Hodinkee for Christ's sake. You know, it's like this is a goofy thing. This is a right. self-deprecating site. Um, it was really important. And it wasn't it wasn't premeditated. It was just how I viewed the world. And so, you know, whether I could afford it or not, I would say like that's a beautiful thing. And I respect that you made it, my friend, you know. Um, 
But I think there there was so much at the time that was the opposite of that, which was like this this has to cost X, Y, and Z, otherwise it's not worth our time. Right. Um, so approaching it from the middle class mindset, which is what I still do today and everything I do, um, you know, continues to 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 work for me. When did you come up with the t- uh, concept of talking watches? So never really came up with it. <laughs> just kind of it just kind of landed in our lap. Um, so talking watches is a show we we host on YouTube. It's usually myself, sometimes some other guys on the site. With like you know somewhat well known people like a John Mayer or Jack Nicholas the golfer, he's on Sorry, like pretty famous people. And John Mayer became a really early friend and early supporter of the site. He emailed in one day and he was like, "Hey, dude, love what you're doing. Would love to get involved." And I was like, "Okay, you know, sure." <laughs> Sounds you know? good. Yeah, and this was 2012. This was like yeah. I was still in yeah. grad school, and so you know we became friends and. You know, he was the only like wealthy younger guy I knew. And so I got to experience a lot of really special watches because he could afford them, you know? <laughs> and uh and similarly, like like I was one of the only guys in the watch world around that was young or not trying to sell him something, right? I mean, like John, you know, has a lot of money, always he's a rock star, like he can afford whatever. And there are a lot of guys around that were friends with him, but were also trying to say, hey, take a look at this, it's 150 grand, or take a look at that, right, it's right, right. grand, you know. And so we just became like fast genuine friends and then on top of that he was on the road nonstop. i was on the road nonstop, and weirdly we kind of shared a similar kind of disbelief of the lives that we had you know i mean he had a very different level of course um but i was just like yeah like i'm in fucking central bay right now with ap i don't know why but i am and like my friends from home frankly most of them I'm, i'm kind of now reconnected with but during that period of my life i was not tight with them at all because they couldn't understand it at all and i was you know it wasn't like today where you're just on text nonstop. You know, they would text me once or twice saying, hey, do you want to come out on Friday? And I would not respond because I'm in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then sooner or later, they would just stop texting. You know, and so John and I connected over kind of like the solitude of, of those types of right. lives. When it comes to like the creation and curation of the content, yeah. um, how how like how much were you thinking about it? Like were you trying to plan it out or was it just like at any given moment, any given I think moment. we should, this is a cool watch or this is a cool concept, was, we should talk about it. It was me and two other dudes. You yeah. know? I mean, it was me and then, it was me and then me and Will, me and Will and Steven who are both still friends. Uh, and, um, you know, so it wasn't, there wasn't an editorial calendar. Now there very much is. Right. Like we have a full team and great people. Um, but I'm a, I'm a shoot from the hip type of guy. You know, like let's just figure this out and get it done. And I also found that, like, the, the, the bloggy, which I would now call YouTube or Instagram y type of content, like, was really what resonated the best. It was like, hey, I met this guy in the Beverly Hills Hotel. He's wearing these cool sunglasses. And I take a picture of him and say, like, this is what he does. This is his background. Check out his shades, you know? And yeah. like, oh, that's pretty neat, you know? All the other content was so premeditated and so manufactured. Yeah, yeah. formulaic, you yeah. know? It's like, instead of taking, like, I used to carry around a, a Canon DSLR. I'm sorry, I should correct that eight. Nikon DSLR. Yeah. Everyone else used Canon. Yeah. Uh, everywhere I went, and if you were wearing a Fitbit, I would take a picture of that Fitbit and post it online. Yeah. Um, and that was very, you know, it was very kind of like, it, it's, you know, I was in journalism school, we did like beat reporting. Mm-hmm. It felt like that. It's like wherever you are, like there could be a story, just take the picture, figure it out, do the reporting and write it up, you know? Yeah. And I think that the Columbia did serve me well in, in that regard. But yeah, there was no premeditation at all. I remember that first video with John Mayer. I mean, yeah. was that really the kind of like breakout moment for that was I don't know about Hodinky but yeah. for talking watches. That, yeah, that was the first episode of Talking Watches. And I'm sorry. Oh, was it actually the yeah, first episode? It was, okay. yeah. So I'll to answer your question more concisely. It was 2012 or 13. We were texting. He's like, hey dude, I'm in New York. I've got five watches and two hours to kill. I'm doing Letterman tonight. You're around. And I the office was on Barrick Street. He lived across town in Olita. We said let's meet at Little Prince in Soho, which is kind of yep. halfway between. And Will, my my videographer, was there. And I was like, hey, dude, I'm going to bring a camera guy if that's cool. And he's like, sure, whatever. So we we met there basically for lunch. And Will just started shooting the conversation we had. One camera, like we didn't talk about the watches. Nobody was in wardrobe, no makeup, no anything. And he just shot it and put it on the internet probably like, you know, a month or two later. <laughs> and it was just like internet magic in a bottle, and which happens, you know. And uh, people just freaked the fuck out. You know, they just, they just <laughs> loved it. And it was like, you know, John was known as a watch guy. And a lot of like the bullshitty trade magazines had tried to get to him for years. And, you know, he like he only wants to work with something that he actually like likes and enjoys. Right. And so this was a coup for sure. Um, and but then, also it was such like a genuine conversation to the point that you were like, is this guy even a rock star? Yeah. And I think that's what kind of at least grabbed me at the time. I'm sure yeah. many others was yeah. like, 
yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a pretentious activity, yeah. but like wasn't done in that manner. Yeah, and I think, yeah, exactly. And like he, you know, as he said in that episode, or maybe the second one, like he shovels dog shit in his Patek, and like he does. Yeah, and, yeah you know, yeah. I, I off, I don't shovel dog shit, but I change diapers in a Patek. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think like that just, that spoke concisely to the right. point of what Hodinkee was, which was like, yeah, like this guy fucking is from Fairfield, Connecticut. Like he worked his ass off to become this, you know, maestro of the guitar and rock star. He deserves to be able to buy a twenty four ninety nine. Like, why right. not? You know? Right. Yeah. And I think that is a type of um type of thinking that that I really subscribe to as well. And it it never felt, as you said, it never felt showy, it never felt like I'm not he's not stunting on me, you know, right. it's like it's just a different thing. Uh, and that was the first of many. And then after we did Mayor, we did uh some ones with some Italian collectors and other great names and all of a sudden it became a really popular thing um you know you you talk about how a lot of the content came about just like you wanted to do it you put it out there as the business started to grow as you had more costs and things to you know have to cover and things like that hire more people Mm -hmm. um was there ever like a situation where it was almost like this conflict between oh we need to do something to make money or and like we just want to be yes. genuine and put out the content that I want to put out and how did you balance that out Yeah it was it was I was lucky in the sense that like I lived in a shitbox apartment that was probably like 1100 bucks a month or something like yeah. that uh Steven and Will were paid very poorly in the beginning you know they they've since been corrected um <laughs> and it was it was really about survival and lifestyle you know and I think you know Steven was really really young when we hired him Will was in kind of like a dead end job like they were both just happy to have like kind of a, a cool little thing going on you know and it wasn't really about the money it never is in the beginning yeah. and uh and then things change uh and then um you know we really just wanted to have a good life and that was it and I was very happy with Hodinking being just like a, a lifestyle business which is one that just affords you travel yeah. the world and i know to this day like i was on the journal like the lifestyle journalist scene for a while there oh i'm i'm in california now with you guys i'll be at pebble beach next week several of those guys that i met 15 years ago are still on that train now mm. which is like guest of mercedes-benz then i'm gonna hop to the range rover party and i have to swing by bmw otherwise they'll be pissed and like that that is one way of doing it and i lived that life for you know probably five years and i realized like this is not the life i want mm-hmm. um but it's still a good life you know no judgment there um so but it was really about being a lifestyle business and then out of nowhere really somebody came along and said we want to buy hodinky we think this could really be something big and it was a big media group in new york city and, and yeah, around what year was this? This was 2014. 14, yeah. yeah. And so this was after... Like six years after starting it? or Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yep. Yeah. After Talking Watches kind of took off, after the New York Times story, yeah. like we had gotten some mainstream, like good good coverage. And so, you know, they offered me, you know, a few million dollars, which was like, you know, yeah. just mind-melting, you know? Um, but I mean, like, it would have been gone by now had I taken it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and at, I was about to take it, and we were like, diligence was done, like we were at the finish line. And I had become friends with a guy named Tony Fidel, uh, yep. who um, invented like the, the iPod, iPhone, iPhone, iPod, <laughs> Nest as well. <laughs> yeah. He had just sold Nest to Google for like $3 billion. Right. I mean, like yeah. very different thing. And he'd be, we had coffee at the Nomad Hotel in New York. And he's just like, dude, like, like selling companies like getting married. And like, you know, would you get married to your wife if she cheated on you the night before? And like, obviously the answer is no. And he's just like, I just don't think this is the right fit. Like, you're going to be the smallest brand in this dying business at the time anyway like it just doesn't feel good like let i believe in this brand i believe in you let me help you raise money right. and i was like okay but like i still like i still don't have a dollar to my name i'd like i'd like something for this you know and so we ended up with tony's help raising from google ventures uh true ventures which is a great great uh vc yep. uh mayor came in you know friends like that we raised about five million so at that time like you you were sort of strapped for cash in the business like you needed money to grow and continue the to market business and was strapped for cash and i was strapped for cash, <laughs> yeah you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we were one Just, of the same i mean yeah. to be clear we really were one of the same right. it was a single owner llc it was it was me you know um and so we needed we needed money and i wanted security like i had been already working for six years at that point so you're like what 32 years uh, old 31 yeah yeah about that about that in in my 30s and uh yeah 32 exactly right um and uh, and so we came because I also had this offer on the table where I would make a few million bucks, like m- yeah. meaningful thing. And so we were able to figure out a way where, like, you know, we raised money and I was able to have a little bit of security. And the the, the folks that invested were more than happy to provide that. You know, it wasn't like I started the week before; I started six years before. Right. You know? uh, so we did that, and that was life changing for me for sure, and just allowed me to kind of like take a deep breath and to say to my parents, like, it's going to be okay. Because up yep. until that point, I was traveling around the world in business class, but I didn't know if it was actually going to be okay. Like, I didn't Who was know paying for that brands, watch brands. 
So they like we became big enough where brands would say, "Hey, dude, we want you in Paris for a cocktail party tomorrow night. Can you write about it afterwards?" And I'd mm. say, "Sure," you know. Uh, and it was kind of a you know a kind of a I don't it wasn't payola, but it was sim- frankly similar to that. But that is how so much of right. like media happens. Today. Where do you think the that was like what eight years ago? Yeah. Um, where do you think the brand would be if you had sold the Hodinki? Yeah, uh, I think it would probably. Probably either be dead or I would have bought it back for a dollar from that company. <laughs> you know, so that, that, that company, just take it from yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. There's a liability, and and that that actually probably could have been a reality. You know, we were this we would have been the smallest brand by far yeah. at a very powerful publishing company. You know, and uh, how pissed are they now? Uh, uh, I don't think they're. Well, we'll talk about that. Off did they ever come back and say, <laughs> "All right, maybe now's a better time"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um. And, you know, look, I have a ton of respect for, for all the publishing companies, whoever it might be out there. Um, but it, the best decision I ever made was not selling it back then. Yeah. Right. Um, and so then just the experience I've gained from then raising money and then Kevin Rose, who's the founder of Dig, who's a kind of a legend in Silicon Valley, actually That's moved right. to New York to work with me at Hodinkee. Mm. And with him came developers. Back then we were working with an agency. Um, and with him came just like a tech know-how that was significant. Um, and that was our first kind of step towards becoming like an investment-grade company. Back then, we were a blog. Right. Then we started building our own apps, building our own websites, like doing in-house tech. Mm. When Obviously, when you started, there was no exit strategy because there was barely like an entrance strategy. But when you were raising money, did you have to come up with an exit strategy? Not an exit strategy, but a, a, certainly a revenue model be, beyond <laughs> advertisements. You right. know? So back then, we were selling advertisements for right, right, right. whatever you know but that was that was like a meaningful business back yeah. then you weren't selling watches or anything we were not selling yeah. watches at scale not on the internet we were selling straps which is actually a pretty yeah. good business uh that we kind of pioneered in the watch space uh, and we were selling watches at pop-ups mm-hmm. so we would go to harrods in london for a week mm-hmm. and sell some watches i mean like we used to supply the watches to club monaco and ralph lauren and places like that mm-hmm. and it was a good little thing but the 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 revenue model that we all kind of decided on together was selling watches on the internet which sounds simple enough, but really nobody had done it. Were they really not doing it back then? So the answer was people were doing it, but in the shadiest. Yeah, I was about to say like yeah. probably not a trusted. Oh source. my god! Yeah. I mean, like the op- even yeah. today, like even I today. come across exactly. these shady. And so websites. we started selling vintage watches online, and we were very, you know, like I'm just like I- I'm not this guy in a Brioni suit saying this, trying to sell you watch with like champagne and caviar. Like I'm your <laughs> nerdy best friend that knows a little bit more than you, you know. And so we took that idea and said, let's talk about vintage watches on the internet. We started doing these graphical layovers where it's like, okay, here's this, we'll say swatch. It's got a blue dial, whatever, but you should know, and we'd be hyper-transparent that there's a scratch on the crystal, which there is in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine, mine has a scratch too. It's plastic. Yeah. But it's like, it's, it like oh, it's a patino, nice. Exactly. But the, <laughs> the idea of telling somebody the truth that like no vintage watch is perfect because none of them are, right? Even perfect ones have issues, um, was really kind of illuminating for the industry and for us, and mm. people just started to really engage because we were being truthful. And so like, look, we're telling you this thing's been polished. We're telling you the hand's been changed or whatever. Right. And people really identify with that. So we started doing vintage watches, more accessories. And then we started designing our own watches, our yep. limited editions, which this one is. Uh, and then from there, and we you're talking about the Swatch. Yeah. One? So this wasn't our first, but our, our first watch was with Max Booser and friends. Was that the white one? No, it was, um, it was a $52,000 crazy high end oh, watch. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> and we sold it out in a day. That was risky for sure because we had to buy them as a retailer. Uh, sold them out in a day. That's half a million dollars in sales right there, which was like the biggest day we've ever had by a factor of 10. Um, and, uh, and we're like, okay, maybe this could be a thing. And so then we, we were working towards becoming the first authorized retailer of watches on the internet. Mm-hmm. And we ended up becoming that, thankfully. And we are still one of maybe three or four kind of pure player online retailers of watches on the internet. Mm-hmm. Everybody that you see online that's selling a, a Rolex is not an authorized dealer of Rolex. Yeah. Interesting. And you guys have had done some like pretty awesome collabs yeah. since then. And uh, we've had Ronnie Feig on the show as the founder yeah. of Kith. And yeah, we love his collabs too. And he's, he's, I mean, he's the man. He's a collab king, you know? He is, yeah. Um, is there anyone that maybe you really want to collab with, any brand or anything that you haven't done uh, yet? That... Look, I mean, I think I, I love Rolex and Patek, but like they don't do that stuff. Right. I respect that. Right. Not, totally yet. not yet. I mean, look, anything's <laughs> possible. Right? Well, I mean, they did a Cartier one, no? What's well, that? I, doesn't Rolex have a Cartier? Or is that? Uh, it's not really a, a collab. They were like got retailed by. Got it, by got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when we collaborate with stuff, like, just like Ronnie, who's our neighbor, which yep. I have a billboard <laughs> on a store right now. Um, you know, we really design the shit. Like, it's not just like, hey, like, let's take something you already have and put Hodinkee on it. Like, no way. Like, we want this to be our expression of their product. We want to tell their story our way uh, or bring something out that they already have within their history. Mm-hmm. So everything is designed by us. And so, you know, we really, we ensure that it feels like us every single time. And, uh, you know, we've worked with everyone from Leica. We did two cameras. I'm sorry. 
that was a that was a Freudian slip. There'll be another camera coming soon. We've done one camera. <laughs> yeah. Um with Leica, we work with Hermes. You know, we work with Omega, with IWC, with Vacheron. We're talking the best brands in yep. the world, you know? And the fact that these legacy brands, I mean, Vacheron is, was founded in 1755. It's yeah, old in this country, you know? Yep. The fact that they were interested in working with a, with a blog to sell product is remarkable. And what was their, like, what's that pitch like? I mean, is it, for them, like, what's the benefit? Yeah, new, new customers and a younger audience. Got and it. back then, Vacheron was really a stale brand. I mean, Got like, bluntly, really stale. And... um and we cre- we took a watch that existed. Uh, we did it in steel, which didn't exist. We designed a dial with pulsation, just like some cool vintage, you know, traits. And we sold thirty six units to thirty six people who had never bought a Vacheron. Mm-hmm. Truly, and so one hundred percent of the people had never owned a Vacheron. All of a sudden, there's a hundred, a hundred percent new clients, and oh. all of them were younger. And some of them, for example, were in the NBA and have yep. been on HBO and like you know, cooler people. And I think what Hodinkee has has done well is get people into watches in the yeah. first place. It's not like we're competing with Tourneau or our friends at, um, what's the store here in Beverly Hills? Geary's. Yep. Great store. Like, we're not competing with them at all. Like, yep. our audiences don't even know what Geary's is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people kind of misinterpret us as. Like, we're not stealing anything away. Right. We're growing the world. Yeah. You know? yeah. What is the long-term vision? And do you see yourself, you know, running it for a long time or... Well, I mean, to be clear, I'm, I'm not running it now. I'm not oh, the okay. CEO now. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm the executive chairman, uh, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> something my parents consistently make fun of me for. And yeah. as I say to everyone, it's good work if you can get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm in a chairman role now, which is, you know, it is allows me to do everything that I'm good at and nothing that I'm not. Yeah. And when I was CEO, I was forced to do stuff that I was not good at, frankly. Like, I am not. I'm, I, I, I can absolutely be a CEO of a company up to 50 people. Yeah. Once you get past that. It's just not, I'm not good at it and I don't enjoy it. You yep. know, so I was really, really happy to kind of step to the side and let somebody else take over and grow this thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I will always be the founder of this business, that's for sure. And I would love to be perpetually involved in perpetuity. You know, yep. I, I love this. It's my, it's like my firstborn, you know. Um, but I think there are more able-bodied folks in positions of power now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Not, not I think, I know. Uh, our new CEO, Jeff Fowler, is really an incredible guy. And mm-hmm. like for the first time ever, I can learn from somebody else. And yep. I think like that, like I'm 39, like I'm not an old person. Right, I want right. to continue to, to have a career and, and grow. And Jeff is somebody that I admire. And, you know, I think he admires me in a very different way. Like he's a, he's a, he's a great leader. I'm a great entrepreneur. It's just a different thing. Yep. Were you collecting watches during this time? Oh yeah. Like crazy. <laughs> like, like cra- <laughs> it was, I was. Obsessed. So is that where the money was going? Essentially like you're just making money buying watches? I had, yes. Uh, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I shouldn't admit that too loudly, but I mean, before the, before yeah. we took investment, 100%. Yeah. It was just going to watches. I mean, I had watches. And it was nice because I knew so much and knew so many people. I could get in and out easily. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obsessed, just like I am with golf now or yeah. cars now. I was going to ask, like, what life looks like now. I'm, you know, you, you mentioned being a collector. Yeah, I know you collect cars. I know, I know you're a big golfer too. Yeah, uh, is that kind of, you know, like you're still being a young guy, 39. I mean, yeah. what what else do you have in mind, like in terms of in terms of business or, in terms or just of, yeah, career, like yeah. business? Do you just you know want to yeah, just travel golf and yeah, yeah, that would be just nice. Retire, yeah, yeah. Just retire, retire. At 39. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wish. Uh, actually, don't wish at all. Like, I, I love working. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I think like Houdinki bluntly still has a long way to go we're 170 employees we do over 100 million in sales a year we have this great new ceo like we expect this thing and i can promise you we'll get there to be a multi-hundred million dollar if not a billion dollar business potentially yeah Yeah. um i don't know how long it'll take but we'll get there like there's no i give you my word you know yeah Uh, we have the team we have the brand we have all that stuff so i'm still involved with that i'm still on the board i'm still like i'm an employee of hodinki like I, i believe in the future there now more than ever I started a company called Fair Game, which right. is a, it's a, somebody had a meeting this morning about it who very funnily called it the Raya of golf, yep. which is, <laughs> which is like somewhat accurate, uh, yep. but it's a little bit, I, we can tend to look at it, look at it like the Strava of uh-huh. golf. Uh-huh. Uh, we started that, we really launched it a week ago with my buddy Eric Mayville and Adam Scott, the golfer. And um, we think that has, has real legs. And I think, you know, my, my time, uh, I'd love to spend a lot of time on that because I think there's just a long way to go. And the golf world reminds me exactly of the watch world 15 years ago, yep. which was like massive disconnect between the people that control it, which tend to be usually rich white men, uh, and the people who actually love it, which tends to be anybody else. You know? I agree. And it seems like COVID especially accelerated yeah, that. A lot. I know, I mean, countless people that got into golf during yeah. COVID. Exactly. There's nothing else to do. You're exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. Myself being one of them. You yeah. know, one thing, so we spent about 55 minutes with you so far, but the one thing that I can tell is that you're a likable guy. You <laughs> That's know? very kind. Yeah. But how much of a role do you think that that has played in the success, especially early on? Because yeah. 
at the end of the day, you're writing about watches, right? Early on, you're writing about watches. I don't care what anybody says. That's what it was. Yes. A lot of people could write about watches. Correct. Yes, you came up with it, but a lot of people could do it. Yeah. Do you think the likability was a big factor in brands wanting to be working with you? Yeah, I, I think the brands wanted to work with me not because of me. You know, I think you see some influencers or bloggers mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. there and it's like, okay, uh, I don't know, like Kiara, if you know her. Yeah. Like, you know, I've, I've done some stuff with her. She probably has, what, 20 million followers? She's absolutely gorgeous. She's like, she's she's got the full package. You know, right. like, I get why Louis Vuitton wants to be on her body. This is the Italian right. one, right? Kiara Ferragni. Exactly. Yeah. exactly right. yeah. Like, she's she's a model. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. I'm not that, you know? And so, the, <laughs> according the old, to one of the people that asked questions, apparently you are <laughs> very handsome. to be my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, the, the brands only wanted to work with me because people wanted to be around me. Mm-hmm. And by people, I mean, and I mean this respectfully, like guys like you and like normal guys. And I yeah. think like I can play the ambassador of the normal guy really well. Right. And that like, you know, I'm like not in the best of shape, but I'm not in terrible shape. Right. right. Like I like stuff. Like I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the best looking guy in the room. I'm not the best athlete, but I still like have taste and I still like right. care about things, you know? And I think that that is a very important factor of right. my success. You're, you're authentic, right? Like you're I not trying to, to you're not trying to be like, this bourgeoisie person, yeah. I mean, even though you're in those settings, no, but yeah. like, you're not trying to go above and beyond like, Hey, I really am trying really hard to be that guy. No, this I, is like who I am and yeah. take me for who I am. Yeah. Look, th- this version of me, which is effectively wearing a polo shirt and glasses and boat shoes. Like I was doing this when I was in sixth grade. Like I look just <laughs> like this in sixth grade. You know, like I haven't yeah. changed at all. Right, right. We got to yeah. find a picture of him in sixth grade. <laughs> I mean, I, we can get it. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and this is what I'm going to be like 30 years from now. Like, yeah. I just know. Yeah. And I think people can tell that about me. And like the love of watches, like. This isn't like, oh, I think I can make money doing this. I'm going to force myself to love watches, dude. Like, I have gone to the ends of the earth for watches, yeah. you know, like for myself and cars right, and whatever right. else. Uh, so it, it's a really genuine thing and authentic indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we mentioned yeah. it, but earlier today, uh, we ran, um, we asked our followers on Instagram um, some, some questions, like what they would want you to sure. answer. So I'm just going to run through them. Maybe we could do like a rapid fire thing. Um, so someone said, if, he could wear one watch only out of his collection. What would it be? I mean, so there's my grandfather's Omega, which is the obvious answer. Yeah. But I think if I were to remove that because, you know, removing sentiment from it, I think like a perfect thing is either a, a Long & Stone Longa 1 or a, a Rolex 6263. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your approach to clothes style? Why? Why does it go well with watches and cars? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm not a clothes guy. You know, I'm not like super sartorial, but like I like nice clothes and I think it, it does represent who you are. So like, as I was just saying, like, this is who I was. I'm just wearing like cashmere now instead of cotton, you know, but it's, uh, it's still the same thing. And like, to me, it's just about like, it's an expression of who you are. And I think like dressing very understatedly that fits in most environments, I think is, is actually very difficult to do. And I, I do enjoy that challenge. Mm-hmm. How has being a father changed your views on life and business? Oh my God! I mean, I think are you are you guys fathers? No, no yeah, okay, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, it it changes everything instantly, and it's just like business does not matter, life doesn't matter, she doesn't. That's it, and that that's not a novel response, but that is reality. Which watch brand is the most underrated one in your opinion? Uh, weirdly, I'm going to say Omega, even though the, the the second largest brand in the world. The the product and the, own like all the other or yeah, no, Swatch, I guess Swatch owns, owns all that. Yeah, I mean, like Omega. Because Rolex is such a dominant force, at least right. in, in the U.S., you know, they, people don't understand how high quality that stuff is. It is yeah. killer. I, and Grand Seiko starting to come around as well. If you had to pick one for life, bracelet or strap? Oh, man. Uh, probably bracelet. Bracelet. Uh, how much of acquired knowledge from interviews did you apply to your own collection style? Uh, a, a lot of it. I mean, a lot, you know, I would say 50% my taste, 50% learned taste. You know, not in like a premeditated way, but like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, Rolex made, I'm sorry, that Rolex made the movements for Panerai in 1940s. And, you know, it's just like, I, I've seen so much that I can now kind of edit through it all. Yep. And, and that is, after I was a writer, I was an editor, and that's what I also did at journalism school. Yeah. And like being able to like, kind of like. Once you learn like the ins and outs, it like yeah. influences a lot you, of your taste exactly. for sure. You, you yeah. know what's real and what's not. Yeah. This is a good one too. It gets hard to remain objective, especially as a journalistic outfit when yeah. a company takes on more debt or raises funds. How do you remain objective? Yeah, I think that's that's a question that we've been posed with several times, and I think you just do the best you can. And I think like you could just ask the same of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Like we all know who owns both of these these things. Yeah, um, you do the best you can, and like the, if you go to journalism school, which I did, I don't know if you guys knew that. That's a joke we talked about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, the very first thing they tell you to do is identify your bias. Yeah. So my bias was raised in public school. I probably have a little chip on my shoulder because we didn't have money growing up. Like just figure out like who you are and like why you are the way you are. And um, 
And you just do the best you can. And I think uh, with Hodinkee in particular, like people are quick to call out bullshit, and we just do the absolute best we can. And nobody's perfect. And I like I, again, I think the editor in chief of the New York Times would say the exact same thing. You just try your best. Yep. One final one that just came in a minute ago. Uh, <laughs> when did it hit him that he made it, or if he even feels that way? Uh, you know, imposter syndrome. I know is something that has been discussed here before, and like it is, it is very prevalent. It was very prevalent in mm-hmm. in my case. Um, you know, there wasn't like a, a, a well. You know, I mean, uh, the in transparency, like the first time I saw a million dollars in 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 a bank account, it's like, oh my god, that's that's a that's a crazy thing you right. know? uh but i think beyond that it was just the idea that like i didn't have to go to an office ever again mm-hmm. if i didn't if i didn't want to i could i mean i'm yeah. working i mean i was just as you know i was just on a zoom call right before you guys came in like that was work and i'm in beverly hills right now um so that i i also think uh you know getting the, i'm a believer in the media being a being an, an ex-journalist and when the new york times wrote about me that was like okay even if i had made nothing I think I probably would have been really fucking proud of Houdini mm-hmm. just because of that story. Yeah. I'll ask one thing that I'm really curious about is that obviously the last couple of years, the watch game has exploded, yeah. right? Values have gone insanely crazy. high, yeah. crazy, yeah. one would say. You know, why do you think that is? And do you think it's going to quote unquote normalize again? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, look, all collectibles have gone crazy, whether you look at sporting cards, sneakers, wine, art. I mean, it's just bananas. So, you know, COVID had a big part in that. Inflation, you know, stuff you understand um and watches were just part of it you know and then on top of that you have other extremely well-funded uh folks uh, mm-hmm. out there that are that are really trying to push the hype of this stuff which is not us we're kind of the opposite <laughs> right. um and so it just became kind of a perfect storm of covid people sitting around on the internet just looking at cool stuff yep. um i think i think it'll it'll recess a little bit but it'll never be where it was before i mean right. like for example the rolex daytona yeah, it's a fourteen thousand dollars watch at retail. Retail, I bought That's mine like forty two thousand. Right? Exa- yeah, yeah, at least you know. <laughs> but I think like you know, if you had said that two months ago, it probably would have been a fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, but like it's still several times retail. retail yeah. So that is still crazy, but it's not as crazy as everything. And like everything has retracted a little bit, right? I mean, like the peak of the stock market right. was last November, up down. You know how it goes. Uh, it's it's a it's a healthy correction because you know going back to your you know question precisely like. It was frothy. It was scary. You know, I've been doing this now for 14 years. I've seen this before. And it never lasts. And some people get burned. And, you know, there are people that I know that are watch guys. Like, it became very easy or very popular in, in, in the Instagram world and in, in my little world to become like a gentleman dealer, mm-hmm. which is like, you're, you're a cool guy. You got 10,000 followers. I'm going to flip some watches. But you need money to do that. Or you're yeah. doing it on consignment, which means no margin. So a lot of guys would take out credit lines or debt facilities and buy $2 million worth of modern Rolex, which is incredibly easy to turn, right? Like the three of us could go out, I mean, mm. especially here in Beverly Hills, yeah. like we could sell Rolex out of, out of the trunk <laughs> on of the street. Five minutes. It yeah. doesn't take anything, <laughs> yeah. you know? So these guys were buying a bunch of modern Rolex and Pateks, like the hot watches, and making like 3% margin, 5%, you know, just like nothing, you know? Nothing, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the prices went down, you know? And they're like, oh shit, I've got all this stuff and I'm underwater in it. Uh, and a lot of those guys are stuck with it or they're selling it at a loss. They're going to, you know, and they'll figure it out how to pay down the debt eventually. Um, but it's, it's a better, it's a better market the way that it is now than it was three months ago for sure. What do you think the long-term, what's like the long-term outlook of the watch industry in general? Absolutely huge. I think it's like, if you look at the car world, so I'm actually here in Los Angeles for the car show up in Pebble beach. I mean, there are probably 20 cars that will sell this week alone above $10 million. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Nuts. How yeah. many watches have sold above 10? Maybe five ever, you know, maybe. But you think we'll get there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. And we've already started to see, actually, we, there was one wristwatch that sold this year that was nothing historically important at all. It was just an amazing example of an amazing watch. It sold for $10 million. Which one big, was it? It was a Pinkel Patek 1518. Those watches, like, if you had asked me two years ago, three years ago, I would say two, two and a half, excuse me. The, you know, the rumor is some crypto bro bought it. Who knows? But, I mean, a $10 million sale for that watch was unfathomable Crazy. two years ago, and now it's a 10. So that means it could be 15 next time around, you know? And so I think all of a sudden, we're starting to break through into those crazy numbers. And I remember, because I was there with Mayer, we saw, we were in the room in Geneva the very first time a Rolex sold for a million dollars. And we were like, wow, like, that is just bananas, yeah. you know? Right. And now, like, I could, you know, we have, <laughs> legitimately, at Hodinkee, we have a Rolex that's worth over a million dollars. Yeah, Crazy. but see, these are, like, brands that came about, you know, 100 200 yeah. whatever years yeah. ago what happens in that sense like do you think that there's going to be like 
was that the opportunity to launch that that time frame that era the opportunity to launch a you know a, a valuable watch brand or are there going to be like yeah. is there going to be a big turn of events at some point where there's going to be a bunch of new brands out and well, like the Rolex and Patek are not going to be as uh, Rolex Maybe. and Patek will always be, yeah. unless something changed dramatic, like change yeah. of ownership, which which Rolex will never change ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Patek might. Um, they'll always be there. Uh, but, you know, frankly, in the past 10, 20, 30 years, there have been the, the rise of like the what we call the independents, which are small batch watchmakers. Roger mm-hmm. Smith, Philippe Dufour, if you've ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, those have, those you know, because vintage kind of died out and modern Rolex Omega Patek kind of became boring for the nerds like me, independent watchmaking became really hot, mm-hmm. really, really hot. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there's a long way to go there. So I think there's a lot of young watchmakers out there that are following the model of a few guys like F.P. Jorn, if you've ever heard of them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that are like, you know, real watchmakers, real designers, doing it all themselves in Geneva in his case. Uh, and I think those could be really valuable down there. Yeah. Yep. Well, Ben, this has been amazing. Uh, you know, Super can't thank you enough for just like, yeah, just having us here and, and uh, you know, hearing about your story and, and it's, you know, super inspiring, just, you know, following something that you've had this passion for and obviously found a way to make a great you know, life out of it. Um, and uh, yeah, we're excited to see what comes next for you. Awesome. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you, Ben. Fun.